0: Home, it's where you're supposed to feel the safest. But what happens when your home is turned into a house of horrors? Stranger in the House is a true crime podcast that investigates stories of home invasions, murderous spouses, and all manner of heinous acts committed in the one place you should feel safest. We look at crimes that will make you want to lock your doors and pay close attention to the ones you live with. It will make you ask the questions, what is a stranger? And is there one in my house right now? Listen to Stranger in the House on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts now. New episodes every Thursday. In Cold Blood, The Eyes of a Killer, Part 1, by Howard Blum. January 7th, 2023. Suppose you wanted to kill someone. That would be easy. There are a lot of ways. Suppose you wanted to kill four people all in the same house, all within moments of one another. and you chose to use a knife. That could help eliminate the noise, but it would require skill, strength, and endurance. Murder is hard work, especially if people fight back. Then there's the really big obstacle. You want to get away with it. You're determined to stab four people living in a single home in the still of the night and then disappear without leaving a clue to your identity. Now that's a more difficult challenge. But you did it. You have everybody stumped. It's the perfect crime. That's the real-life mystery that had enshrouded the pretty northern Idaho college town of Moscow. Pronounced not like the Russian capital, but to rhyme with Costco, the locals, with no attempted irony, quickly reprimand newcomers. It had been a football Saturday in mid-November, the last home game of the 2022 season for the University of Idaho Vandals. The Kibby Dome, packed with more than 7,600 fans and despite the disappointing loss, Saturday night was still party night for a college-celebrated and knowledgeable polls as, quote, the best party school in the state. The stately row of wet frats, as they're known on the U of I campus, twisting along Nez Drive, was crowded with the brothers and their dates, high-spirited assemblies fueled by blaring music, prospects of mischief, and rivers of alcohol. The Hellenic Council, for reasons arcane and firmly sexist, prohibits liquor to be served in sororities. Downtown, Main Street was hopping too. The pool tables at Mingles and the metal-sheathed bar at the Corner Club were shoulder-to-shoulder with students and townies filling the brisk autumn night with the keen of cheery, rowdy late-night fun. And then, in the heavy quiet of the new Sunday morning, four young corpses, all students, all friends, were found hacked to death in their beds in a pale clapboard house, little more than a stone's throw away from the heart of the university campus. There was so much blood, it had seeped through the wooden floors and run down the building's gray concrete foundation and jagged red rivulets. It wouldn't be until nearly seven tenths weeks later when an early morning raid by a police SWAT team thousands of miles away from the scene finally arrested a suspect. Brian Koberger A 28 year old doctoral candidate in the Criminal Justice and Criminology Department at Washington State University was pulled from his parents' home in the rural Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania and charged with four counts of first degree murder and one count of felony burglary. Yet, even with the arrest, mysteries remain. Neither reasons nor motives have been revealed that would explain the horror that ended four lives. And in the unhealed aftermath, there remains an armory of fears. 25,000 people in a once seemingly eucolic town, nestled in the rolling snow-swept hills of Idaho, still alert with suspicions, seared by the mystery of four perplexing deaths. something ominous later when it became necessary to fix blame for the initial confusion over the gravity of the situation fingers in the Moscow Police Department pointed to the dispatcher but the truth is the dispatcher was simply following procedure all the town's 911 calls are routinely routed to Pullman about 10 miles west in Washington State and home to Washington State University, where they're handled by civilian employees of a municipal agency called WITCOM 911. The calls come in from the local Whitman and Asseton counties, as well as the city of Moscow, two universities with a total of about 42,000 students, and 70 additional municipal and county agencies. With the dispatch crews, local newspapers report, are severely understaffed. The overtime schedules often adding up to a grueling 20 hours a week. In fact, the Dispatchers Guild has complained that, quote, our ability to uphold public safety is at risk, end quote. And things only get worse on football weekends. Therefore, when the callers are agitated, rather than risk injurious delays by probing for details, the responders swiftly assign a generic explanation. Unconscious person is one of the standard catchphrases. It can mean precisely what it says, or it can be shorthand for something more ominous. It was 11.58 a.m. on Sunday, November 13th. 2022 when the notification of an unconscious person at a residence on one one two two King Road, Moscow was passed on to Sergeant Shane Gunderson. Gunderson, who on that day was midday through a 12 hour shift that had started at 6 AM was running the operations division at the sparkingly modernistic. It had opened barely 11 months earlier. South View Avenue, police headquarters. Prior to that moment, he'd tell people, his tour had been long and slow. A languid weekend morning, punctuated by the chimes of the town's many church bells tolling solemnly in the wind. In fact, he'd spent a good deal of that desk-bound Sunday mulling something other than police business. Gunderson had been avidly mapping out in his mind a strategy for the eight-hour, or easily more, trek to the summit of Mount Bora. He and a friend from the University of Idaho Psych Department had been planning for the spring. It's Idaho's highest point, and the trail up the southwest ridge to the 12,662-foot summit is a steep, harsh climb. And he'd admit after a beer or two it was just sort of the challenge he'd been missing lately. Now that he had his sergeant's stripes, police work was more about distributing memos and filing papers than getting out in the field. That bothered him. Nearly ten years on the force. He still wanted to be the gung ho officer who had joined up straight out of Lewis Start, who had joined up straight out of Lewis Clark State College, in nearby Lewiston, and worked his way up from patrolman. In his early days, he distinguished himself as a hands-on cop, someone out in the streets doing what Moscow PD calls community policing. Back then, he'd scored a lot of points both in and out of the department, as well as winning Officer of the Year honor in two thousand seventeen when he single-handedly planned and organized a when he single-handedly planned and organized a hot dog barbecue, bringing together the cops and local school kids. He was from the area, growing up in small-town Potlatch, and still smarting from his own childhood run-ins. He knew only too well how hard-ass cops could sour things, making things confrontational. It was his job, he'd say with determination, looking out for and working with the citizens of Moscow. When the 911 came in, Grunderson had a corporal and two other officers on duty to assist with patrol. He could have left the response to them. He certainly, he'd tell the people with a hint of embarrassment, had no intimidation of something out of the ordinary. That morning, he was simply eager to break the monotony and, as always, he felt strongly it was important for him to get out on the street people could see him he swiftly decided he'd go to the scene too with his officers an eerie silence it was a quick trip the roads leading into the university neighborhood that Sunday were empty as the classrooms and as soon as Gunderson's black and white cruiser pulled up behind the neat row of cars parked in the driveway of the asture, cantilevered house on King Road, he immediately knew something was very wrong. It was the noise. There just wasn't any. Just an eerie, unnatural silence. A cluster of young people, university students presumably, were milling outside the open front door of 1122 like gulls on a beach and yet they were exceptionally quiet they weren't merely subdued they seemed stunned as if drained by a deep and intense shock when the three mystified officers approached the front door someone in the crowd it would later be shared muttered a single of word dead still Gunderson would confess to others he was unprepared for the strong smell of blood that rose up in his nostrils the moment he walked inside the coroner who had once been an emergency room nurse in the earlier stage of her life would describe the scene in press interviews as chaos lots of blood Few others would even attempt to put into words what they saw. There are moments, perhaps, will tell you, that are too profound, too unnerving to be experienced in the present. All you can do is move forward. There will be a time later to try to make sense of it all. Procedure takes precedence. It allows a protective membrane to be stretched between the real and the too real. All other thoughts all other feelings extraneous and so Gunderson and his two officers largely mute almost robotic in their movements now stepped carefully across the blood streaked wooden floor and proceeded to inspect a crime scene wedged against a hill the house rose up on three distinct levels from a platform base like an ancient Persian cigarette the officers set out to inspect each floor. They moved cautiously, not knowing what they'd find. Yet, of course, by now they knew. The first floor, nevertheless, was a surprise. There were two bedrooms, and when they anxiously entered each one, there were no signs of anything out of the ordinary. Later, they would learn that the two university student occupants, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, had apparently slept obliviously through the carnage. It was an explanation that made no sense, unless one's life had been informed by the experience of being a college student who'd curled up in bed after a long night of drinking. However, as the staggering day wore on, Mortensen would reveal more about what happened that night. She told the authorities she had heard crying, opened her bedroom door, and saw a man in black clothes and a mask walking past her. Frozen and in shock, she stood immobile as he headed toward a sliding glass door at the back of the house. And then then inexplicably, she returned to her room and locked her door until the morning. But in the daylight, things turned frantic. Mortensen and Funk first stirred from their beds sometime after 11 a.m., They found it impossible to rouse their roommates and called friends for assistance. And then in the torrents of confusion, after the friends had arrived, one of their cell phones was used to make the agitated 911 call that resulted in the unconscious person message, which was relayed to Gunderson. The trio of officers, meanwhile, proceeded with haste to the second floor They opened the bedroom door to find two dead bodies, a male and a female. The pair was gruesomely drenched in blood, yet both their good-looking faces had oddly been preserved like masks. Even at that probing moment, it was difficult. One of the officers would nearly wail to look at the 20-year-old pair, Zanarkornodal, a grave, sad-eyed beauty who was a pi-beta-pi, and her happy-go-lucky tousle-haired Sigma Chi boyfriend Ethan Chapin a triplet from Conway, Washington whose surviving brother and sister also attend the university and not consider the glow of the once rich promise that had been so viciously extinguished. At her high school graduation in Post Falls, Idaho Xana had confidently written on her mortarboard for the lives, I will change. On the third floor, things got, if possible, worse. In one bedroom, lying in a single bed, were two inert women, Madison Mogan and Kaylee gonzalez They might have been sisters. So similar were the 21-year-old's pretty Barbie doll-like sculpted features their long cascades of thick, streaked blonde hair falling down to their narrow shoulders. Yet in death, there was one gruesome difference. Kaylee, it would be reported, had been hacked with a particular ferocity. It was if her wild assailant, or was it assailants, had been intent on gouging out chunks of her flesh, large punctures, was how the lacerations had been described Maddie's wounds while no less fatal appeared less feral more measured at least in comparison across the narrow hallway was one final door the officers pulled it open and at last they discovered a sign of life a fluffy caramel colored dog it was Murphy Kaylee's frisky labradoodle He was unharmed, not marred by even a speck of blood. A small consolation and barely one at that for all they had seen and were only beginning to process. A major case. And it was still the same long day of the frenzied moments and then hours that followed on the seemingly interminable Sunday There's only so much that can be authoritatively reported. Even Gunderson and his team lost track of their efforts in the hectic swell of events. Yet this much is undisputed. Gunderson quickly called his boss, Captain Roger Lanier, the head of the 24 Officer Operations Division. He found him, not unexpectedly for a Sunday, sitting down to lunch with his family. Lanier was a veteran cop. He had spent more than 20 years in the force in nearby Lewiston before before having been lured six years earlier to Moscow with a captain's rank. After all his years on the job, he'd become a steady, avuncular presence. A bald-headed, genial cop who never got flustered, because as he'd tell people he'd seen it all in his day but Gunderson's report left him unnerved it took me a second he recalled a sharp edge even weeks later to the memory i really had to think about what i had just heard four murders in moscow idaho was so out of character but quickly, Lanier's professionalism took control. He had a thousand questions. But finding the answers would be to follow the previously established protocols. Dutifully, he gave the orders to set up the perimeters of the crime scene, to bring in the forensic team, and to summon the coroner. It was standard in a major case. And if four homicides wasn't a major case, what was? To alert the Idaho State Police. And he did that too. Moscow was the responsibility of the state's District 2 Detective Office in Lewiston, the county seat, where he'd been on the job for two decades, and he knew many of the state detectives. There was a companionship. Still, it was a difficult conversation, but his next call was harder. The university had to be informed. It was not just that four students had been brutally murdered in an off-campus home, but there was no way of knowing whether the killer or killers planned to strike again. The students needed to be warned. At 2.07 p.m., a little over two hours after the three cops had entered the blood-soaked house, the University Office of Public Safety and Security sent a vandal alert email to the students and faculty. Moscow PD investigating a homicide on King Road near campus. Suspect is not known at this time. Stay away from the area and shelter in place. A shelter-in-place order requires people to take refuge in a room with no or few windows. At this point, busy hours had already quickly flown by. But despite his marathon of activities, Lanier still had not succeeded in completing one task. That was at the top of his mental list. He had not been able to speak with his boss, James Fry, the chief of police. Be sure to check out my other videos and playlists for more true crime content. And if that's not enough, you can join our Patreon. Don't have a tinfoil hat? It's okay. We'll make you one. It's that easy. See you guys in the next video. See you later. Bye.